You are listening to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. Today is the 27th of February, 2021. Welcome to the Unusually Well-Informed Podcast. I'm your host, Tim Hampton. My unusually well-informed guest today is Anna Crowley-Redding. Anna is an Emmy award-winning investigative television reporter and journalist. She has received multiple Edward R. Murrow awards. Now Anna is the author of four published books and has more on the way. Her first book, Google It, was named the best STEM book for 2019 by the National Science Teacher Association. Today, Anna and I are discussing the life and lessons of Elon Musk captured in her book, Elon Musk, A Mission to Save the World, Anna's life as a journalist, and her process of writing and getting published. Anna, welcome to the show. Tim, thank you so much for having me. I'm so glad to be here. It's my pleasure. I read your book on Elon Musk cover to cover. It is a great read. It's thorough and in places quite moving. What made you, you decide to write a book about Elon? Well, I had written, my first published book was about Google. And um, what was so interesting about that book was peeling back the layers to get to the human story. And so sort of the natural outflow of that project and talking to my editor, uh, Holly West at Macmillan about that was how do we keep that conversation going with the reader? Um, And so she said, Elon Musk. And I said, Yes, let's let's write about Elon and let's, to the best of our ability, try to understand who he is as a person and what's driving him. And so that was a hugely important part of the, the book for me. Great. And what do you consider to be Elon's greatest achievements? I think first and foremost, uh, surviving his childhood. <laughs> yeah. Truly. I mean, it was dark. It was brutal. I think that um, when people see him and see his success and see these rocket launches that are so visually spectacular, now you're seeing Teslas everywhere, even in rural communities. Um, So it's easy to point to that. But when you look at what happened when Elon was little, when he was growing up, that was incredibly difficult to overcome. Well, and your book does really describe Elon's life as a study of determination. Um, What story do you think best illustrates that? I think one of the stories that moved me the the most about Elon is specifically when he was uh, little. There's one sort of serious one and one funny one. The funny one is when Elon's, you know, about six years old and who knows what he's done wrong, but his mother has laid down the law. You are not going to your cousin's birthday party. Um, you are grounded, et cetera. And Elon is like having none of that. Um, it's unfair. Um, he absolutely will go. Um, forget it. He's going to take his bike. He tells his mother, I'll just ride my bike there. It's like 12 miles away. And Elon grew up in South Africa at the time. You know, it was not um, Mayberry. I mean, it was not, parts of it were very dangerous. But uh, never mind that, Elon decided he was going to ride his bike there. So his mother quickly says, you know what, Elon, honestly, you don't have your license. So you, it's not allowed. And Elon thinks, well, that's a great point. I don't have the license. So his mother assumes the issue is settled. And she takes Elon's brother and sister to the party. And um, 
the matter was not settled. Elon decided, well, if she's not going to take me and I can't ride my bike, I'll walk. Yeah. And he did. And so uh, his mother has now gone. The party's gone on for hours. She's gone to pick up Kimball and Tosca. And uh, she's leaving and she spies Elon coming down the block by foot. It took him hours and he walked there and he sees her and he knows that he's in trouble, but he is going to get to the party. So he takes off running to his cousin's yard and climbs this tree and refuses to come down. And it's a funny story. It's delightful, uh, but it is also who he is today. This is my goal. And come hell or high water, I'm going to accomplish it. And whatever problems come up, I am going to look at them with fresh eyes. I'm going to get a team of people around me that can help me solve the problem. I think, you know, the other side of that is um, when Elon, his parents divorced when he was little and um, he went to, to live with his father. And, and he's never said publicly exactly what happened with his dad, only that he was very dark um, that, uh, his father would make plans for evil. Um, and it was, um, it sounds like it was a very tough environment, uh, for Elon. Um, additionally, the school that he went to, um, Elon was the smallest kid in the class. And so he was bullied and terribly bullied. And, uh, one day he was sitting, um, on top of a flight of stairs at the very top uh, next to his brother and some bullies had been looking for him and find him and mm-hmm. kick him down the stairs, down a flight of concrete stairs. So he gets to the bottom of the stairs and then they pummel him and he wakes up in the hospital. And you think about like, put yourself in that position in middle school. Like, how do you go back? How do you keep going? How do you, you know, you have this, dark, dark cloud, uh, in your house, you have this dangerous situation at school. How do you make yourself okay enough to keep going? Mm -hmm. And he does. And his refuge was in books and in making plans about what he was going to do with his life and how he was going to get there. Um, and that is really where you see his process emerge. So, you know, when you see someone taking on something like, I want to make rockets, <laughs> right? Like that is an incredibly difficult problem to solve an incredibly expensive problem to solve. And, um, Elon was not an expert in the field, uh, by any stretch of the imagination engineer or not. But he just decided uh, that's my goal and um, I'm going to learn what's required by reading and calling people who know more about it than I do. And I'm going to figure it out. And he, and he did. So I, I think one of the things to me that's so amazing about Elon is you can see these threads um, in the, in the boy of who he is as a man. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think you pointed out in your book that only six nations have ever put anything to, into orbit. And here we have somebody doing it, you know, just as, just as an entrepreneur. It's an amazing achievement. It's an amazing achievement. And, you know, when he was first thinking about this, his, his first sort of step was um, his motivation early on was Mars. Why right. don't we have a plan for getting to Mars? Um, why aren't we on our way to Mars? 
And uh, here, the United States is is a leader in space exploration, and yet there's nothing on NASA's website at this time about Mars. And so he decides that he's going to try to figure it out um, by inspiring people to get interested in Mars initially. And, and so he sent, he has this idea for sending up sort of this pop-up greenhouse because it will make this incredible photograph of this tiny little green plant with this red sea of red behind it. Right. So to do that, he decides he needs to go to Russia and buy some, you know, ICBMs. I think that's so outrageous. Like just <laughs> imagine telling your friends. Yeah. What are you doing this weekend? Yeah. yeah going to <laughs> Russia, going to buy some, you know, intercontinental ballistic missiles because I want to shoot it off into Mars. And yeah. Are the warheads included? Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so I think that that sort of, that's ultimately not the path he chose in, in getting, uh, attempting to get human beings to Mars. But it is interesting that he will just go and do it. He'll meet with the people. Um, he'll meet the process where it is, and then he will decide where to go from there. And usually by completely reinventing the process, whatever the process is, just the way he did when he was figuring out how to get to that party. That's right. So you have been a journalist writing for adults for a lot of your career. Now you've turned to writing for young adults and children. Um, how does your process of writing change for different audiences? Um, it actually doesn't a lot in terms of the research and the journalism. I think in some ways, when you're explaining some of this to younger audiences, you really have to have a better grasp of it mm -hmm. um, than you do when you're explaining it to adults, because Absolutely. adults can assume, you know, yep. uh, right now I'm, I'm writing about, uh, black holes and the, the team of global scientists who came together to take the first ever image of a black hole. And um, so that's astrophysics. So <laughs> I have to quickly get my head around these concepts so that I can explain them to younger people. Um, I can't just get by by saying they used radio telescopes. I have to explain what radio telescopes are and how they work. So in some ways it's, um, more intense. I actually like that process because it challenges me on the depth of my understanding. Um, and, and then there are some things, um, you know, that are not age appropriate, especially when you're dealing with um, billionaires who are single at some point in their lives. Yeah. And, and anybody's <laughs> entire that, life. Yeah. Yeah. Some of that material is, you know, intentionally left out. Um, yeah. But it's well, meant to be a jumping off point, um, I hope, so that uh, anyone who picks up these books um, realizes that this is just the beginning of, of their journey and understanding um, where we are in the world right now in terms of this sort of technological revolution that's happening right before our eyes. So hopefully it's a, a jumping off point. Well, it sounds like uh, one of the motivations for, for doing these books is it's a chance for you to learn a lot. And that's why I do this podcast. I, I love that process of research as well. But that brings me to my next question, which is, uh, what is Elon time? And would your publisher say there's such a thing as Anna time? Um, well, 
<laughs> that just the pandemic figure into your question at all? Well, sure, that's a good, we'll all use that one. <laughs> so Elon time is Elon uh, just the other day. I was just thinking of this this morning, Tim. This is a great question because he was just saying that he wants to have humans on Mars, I think in the next four years. Mm -hmm. I was thinking in my math, someone really does need to get a hold of all of his promises and then the delivery date, the actual delivery date and figure out the equation for Elon Musk. I could hazard a guess that, you know, maybe it will be 10 years instead of, you know, five, but um, I, um, having studied Elon would never bet uh, completely against him and his goals. That's right. And then well, in terms of in terms Anna of Anna time, time yes, Anna, time, Anna is normally on deadline um, and and ready to deliver. But the the pandemic, um, I have uh, two boys of my own. Uh, my fiance has a twin thirteen year old boys and a fifteen year old daughter. So five kids between us. Mm-hmm. Um, and at various points during the pandemic, at all different stages of at home completely or hybrid or in school or whatever. Um, and that definitely, and I think that many working parents would speak to this, has definitely slowed down um, professional productivity. Yeah. Um, on the flip side, you know, for me personally, a, a lot of that means that I've been required to be in, more involved in their studies. Um, which is always good for my writing because it just uh, you discover all these nuances of, of what they're into and actually what they can handle, what's interesting to them. Yeah, well, and and these are beautiful problems to have, right? More time with loved ones. So yes, congratulations. Yes. So one giveaway that your book is geared towards younger people is the little asides where you talk about life in the late 1900s. Um, you talk about, for example, uh, before we had cell phones, there used to be these things called pay phones where you'd have to put coins in and you'd you'd have to know the number already. Did you feel as old writing that as I did reading it? Yes. (laughs) Yes. There were lots of those little things in there that are great. And like explaining that, um, phones were once wired to the wall. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, those kinds of things. Yes, absolutely. Or that you had to call for help to get somebody to connect you and what a, what a collect call was. And even that you would have coins on you. Yeah, exactly. Like kids today <laughs> don't even really get that. Like, why I mean, would, what would you carry them around in? Exactly. Like a little leather pouch? <laughs> well, this is the thing as, as um, you know, as we get older, so, sometimes you hear something being mentioned as being history that you thought was current events. And that's certainly, yeah. put, you're certainly on the, on the margin there because you're teaching to young adults who have been around for most of Elon's life. And yet here he is still making history. And I had the same uh, sort of experience when I was writing about Google, actually, when I started that book, because I realized that anyone under the age of 30 did not know what life was like before Google. And it was a horrifying moment (laughs) for me. But I, you know, it's funny because when I go into like fifth and sixth and seventh grade classrooms, I ask them, okay, forget about Google, forget about access to your computer. When I was a kid, what do you think I did when I had a question about something? That's right. Yeah. And nine times out of 10, they cannot deliver the steps required without accidentally involving Google in their okay. answer. 
That's hilarious. And I find that amusing and funny. Um, and, and, and also, yes, it does make you feel quite old. So let's talk a little bit about that book, uh, Google It, A History of Google. How would you contrast Elon's approach to building a company with the founders of Google? That's an interesting question. Um, well, first of all, uh, all three of those people, um, Sergey Brin, Larry Page, and Elon Musk are friends. Um, so they were in Silicon Valley at the same time. They arrived there at the same time. Um, Elon today will, will couch surf at either of their homes. Um, so, but Elon, there are different, he's collaborated with different people on different companies, um, such as PayPal. Um, but one of the things that makes Elon, I think, fundamentally different is when we talk about Google, I'm talking about Larry and Sergey. And they had this one project that they were working on. It was incredibly difficult to figure out how to organize the internet. Um, it was really difficult to um, figure out uh, how that could make money and to get investors on board with that. I think that was a huge problem for them. When we talk about Elon, we talk about Elon singular. Mm -hmm. And that is not to say that Elon does not have a um, team of people behind him at every turn and in his personal life, um, people uh, who are inspiring him and um, helping him sharpen his ideas. But I think Elon has a singular vision for his life and the difference that he wants to make and why he wants to make it. And he is stuck to it. And every company he's been involved with somehow gets back to that core promise. So I do think the the style is different. I, I think probably the, the experience for employees is different as well. You know, when Google first started, they were the, Hey, let's work hard, but let's also shoot a game of pool sure. or ride our, <laughs> you know, color, colorful bikes around the campus or whatever. Or the ball pit or whatever. Yeah. Whatever it was. And um, Elon is more like, hey, if you want to come save the world, come save the world. But we're going to work our rear ends off doing so. Yeah, for sure. And he models and, it too. And he models it. And he might be up at two o'clock in the morning emailing people or calling them or you, it is, uh, he lives and breathes it in a way that is um, unique. Another interesting thing is that, I mean, I'm sure the founders of Google, they, they've, they've expanded Google into Alphabet and they have other mm -hmm. ventures. But really, when you think of the two of them, you think about Google, you think about search, that's their banner sort of a venture. But when you think about Elon Musk, he's, he, he's never going to just relax once he's achieved something. He's not buying an island and, and having early retirement, which is incredible. It comes back to that determination you were talking about earlier. Having had that opportunity multiple times. Exactly. I mean, so I think that's interesting. And even recently, he sold his property, um, multiple houses that he mm -hmm. sold. And it's this idea of how much money can I make so that I can pour it into 
getting human beings to Mars. And why do I want to do that? Because if we only stay on the planet, planet Earth, we are going to experience an extinction event, and that will be the end of human beings. So if I want another way for a human civilization to carry on, I had by God better get human beings to Mars. And he does not stray from that. So um, has learning about Elon changed your habits and goals in any way? Yes. Um, It's made me actually with both of those books, it's made me think a lot about uh, being a woman. Uh, I can remember, um, you know, when I was doing in investigative reporting in different newsrooms, I can remember going into, you, know, you start the day with a morning meeting and you are um, talking about what should be news, what should be on the news, um, which a newscast should it be in, what's the story treatment, how much time should a reporter be assigned to it, et cetera. I found these meetings so irritating. I felt like if you don't wake up in the morning and have some sense of what should be on at five, five thirty, and six, what are you doing? And so I found myself, you know, very fidgety in these meetings, very impatient, very like, you know, let's get the show on the road so we can get out there find out what's going on, put a story together and make a a difference in the conversation. People in the professional world have a name for a woman like that. And it's not what they call Sergey Brin, who is the same way, or Elon Musk, who is the same way, who they call, wow, he just cannot, does not appreciate inefficiency. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They don't, use phrases like that to describe women. Right. And so I thought about that a lot, um, but I found sort of that uh, exploration uh, empowering. Um, I also think the way that Elon makes decisions is interesting, which is, and I talk to the kids about this all the time, what's in the envelope of possibilities. Okay, so if you don't turn in this assignment, what are the possibilities? Your teacher could give you an extra day. Uh, Your teacher could fail you. Uh, You might be grounded. There is a one in one millionth chance that I say that's okay that you decided not to do your your work. (laughs) Is is getting an A without doing it in the envelope? No. No. (laughs) So, but... What that process does is take the emotion out of things, takes the emotion out of decisions, whether they're business or personal or whatever, and look at them strategically and methodically. And and what are the possibilities here? And what is my goal? And what am I trying to accomplish? Um, And so I think that that's an interesting way. Uh, The other thing um, that struck me at the time, I was a single mom when I was working on this book and Elon's parents divorced when he was little and his mother, May Musk, who is a cover girl at 73, Mm -hmm. um, wrote, she talked about raising Elon and and his siblings and uh, that she didn't hide her business from them. Uh, If there were mailers to go out, the children helped. If there was a dinner party, Elon went as her plus one. 
Um, if there were clients to be shown into the house, the kids answered the door. And for me as a mom, I, the minute that I um, heard that I stopped hiding what I do for my children. Right. You know, mom right now is talking to an expert. If you want to listen in, you can, uh, but you, these are my expectations, right? Yeah, for sure. Um, but, and they're being very good by the way. Yeah. They're not here right now. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> That's why you don't hear them. <laughs> but do you, you know, I think including them in the, in the process, you know, um, let's take a look at these revisions. What is the editor saying about this paragraph? How can we make that stronger and sharper? I think that what May Musk did, and you see all three of her children are entrepreneurs, is that it gave them natural confidence and comfort in that world. And so that changed the way that I uh, parent my children. So you talked a little bit about uh, your experience as a woman, especially connected to this book. And one thing I, I overheard you talking with the woman who uh, did the audio version of your book and the importance of that to you, that there was a woman's voice that presented the book about this male figure um, yeah. that, that a lot of us can aspire to. I think the goal was to make it so that women and girls could aspire as well. Yes. And you don't hear female voices telling tech stories. You just don't. And I thought, you know, that is that that needs to be normalized. That needs to be changed and normalized. And so that was um, they sent me three um, samples to listen to uh, for uh, auditions for this book. And um, all three um, voiceover artists were so talented. Um, but I really wanted a female lead on the project, and so that's why I picked her. Um, because I just, I, I think it's important. And, and I hope that more authors will do that, um, no matter what the subject matter is. Um, but the, the, the business books and the tech books and the science books should not just be narrated by male voices. The, the women in, in uh, Elon's life, including his mother, uh, including his, his wives, um, you give them a very sensitive portrayal. I think mm -hmm. that that was that really came through, um, especially for Justine Musk. And you were, I think, unflinching in the idea that probably we can admire Elon Musk, but maybe being married to him isn't that easy. Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know that yeah. uh, that he's probably thinking about rockets while you're talking about what you did yesterday. Um, yeah. But one one figure that really stands out, uh, one female figure that stands out, is Gwen Shotwell. Yes. Um, she is nobody, nobody's from what I can tell, I've never heard any suggestion that she's anything but entirely competent and standing on her own feet, but her, yeah. her, you, you tell her story a little bit about how she was inspired to get into engineering. Yes. So when she was a little girl, um, she was interested in how things worked. And, um, so her mom took her to a, a conference, um, to hear a, a female engineer speak and um, Gwen just fell in love with the profession, but with also the speaker who was confident and knowledgeable, but also had a great looking outfit on, a nice pair of shoes, a bag that Gwen wanted. And if you see Gwen, she has so much personal style fashion wise. I mean, you know, first of all, she is unbelievably smart and capable, um, obviously. Um, but for her, that does not mean that she cannot also enjoy 
um, fashion the way that it feels good to her, uh, showing up the way that it feels good to her. And I think that's really cool. I, you know, when we were watching these rocket launches, I always point her out because she's uh, always in the control room running the show. And um, I think that's important for um, people to, to point out to their kids or to see for themselves. And um, one of the things that she said, you know, as, as we can surmise that um, working for um, Elon is no walk in the park. I mean, it's a, a huge, it's a heavy lift. Um, his expectations are high um, and he wants to see excellence and uh, doesn't really want to hear any complaining. Um, and I, I think that she, what she has said is that sometimes he will walk in the room and ask a question that completely undoes everything. <laughs> Can't imagine it. Spent hours and hours and weeks and whatever working on. And that what she had to come to terms with was to realize that the answer to his question made the project so much better and so much stronger. Well, I think maybe she should come back to that idea of what's in the envelope, what will fit in the envelope. Right. Because he right. does, he does, um, this is what I find fascinating about him and what you've illustrated in the book is that he will change his mind about how, but not why. Right. And, and how, you know, that must be so difficult to work for sometimes. Cause you know, you got, you, you're on the team that was developing the carbon fiber shell for the new starship and then, Oh, we're making it out of stainless steel now. Yeah. That's gotta be heartbreaking, but unless you're able to say, well, it was worth trying. We learned something. We might use it later on. We're going this different direction, but we're still going to Mars. Right. And so well, it, and it's that idea of being dedicated to the work, but not attached to it. Yeah, absolutely. And that's, tough. that's hard. Well, you've lived it because I'm sure as a journalist, you've seen a lot of red ink through your copy, right? Yes. Yes. As and, an author too. And, and then you have to ask yourself with that, you, you know, what is the goal? The goal is to put the best story on the air or to put the best book on the shelf. And yes, this is painful right now, but it's going to make it so much better. And the questions that were asked are, are going to make it so much stronger. Um, but, but yes, um, you know, and I think too, that's an interesting idea for um, kids because with social media right now um, and with the internet, two interesting things are happening for, for our kids. One, they are constantly exposed to sort of fake ideas of perfection. Mm -hmm. They see um, these shoots where these celebrities they love look perfect. They have the perfect stuff. They have no idea that it took four hours to, to set that shoot up and however much money and how many, whatever team of people to set it up. They're just wondering how can they look like that? How can they have those things? Um, and, and so there's this idea of perfection every day, perfection, perfection, show perfect. And then with the internet, you know, if you want to find out where your SAT score ranks, you could find out what your rank is globally. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, that's very difficult because it's, it's, in conflict with the idea of problem solving, which I think is the most critical skill, period. And um, the reason it's critical is because we are, you know, going through this technological um, revolution, 
We are having the emergence of the space economy. So all of these big, exciting things are happen, happening that really have nothing to do with what's come before. And so the only thing that we can bring to the table is um, our problem solving and the idea that you don't get it right the first time and that it will fail and fail and fail. And, you know, there were a couple of times in, in Elon's life where, um, you know, Tesla and, and SpaceX uh, almost went bankrupt. Right. Uh, while he was getting divorced. <laughs> while he was getting divorced, while he was sleeping on someone's couch. So, but he is comfortable with that. He is comfortable with failure. I don't, I'm not saying he loves it, but he's comfortable with the process of solving a problem. And I think that that is critically important for our, our kids and, and for all of us uh, going into this brave new world. Um, Elon has said that he views AI as a risk to humanity, artificial intelligence. Do you agree with him? Do you have any concerns about that or, or looking at your kids' lives and what it's going to be like? I, I think that, um, like anything, yes, there is a risk of that. Do I think that there's a way for human beings to get their arms around that or to shape it? Yes. Do I think it's imperative they do it quickly? Probably. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think you know. I think that sort of um, uh, you, you know technology. Runaway run technology in the wrong hands, it would be a major problem. Yeah. And, yeah, and I think that, you know, in real world terms, um, and I know this has been a conversation in Canada, it's been a conversation in the United States and in Europe, is um, uh, one of the things is how do we set ourselves up um, to be the developers of AI? What does immigration policy need to look like to accomplish that? Um, what does um, education need to look like to accomplish that? Um, what does, uh, how we make a living, how we get paid, what does that need to look like? Like really going back to the drawing board um, in a similar way that Elon did with rockets, where he said finally, okay, well, I wanted to make a rocket and I took all the atoms involved in making a rocket. How would I rearrange them? Would it look like? what's come before or would it be something completely different? I think that's where we've got to go with um, education, um, income, um, and uh, how, what we do with our borders um, because the goal is to understand this technology better, to develop it, to shape it, to look at the eth ethical concerns with it. You know, some of the things that have already come up are, um, with AI is that uh, it can adopt our racial bias. Mm -hmm. And so if it's learning what a man looks like, but most of the pictures on the internet are white men, that is a major problem. That's right. So I, I think it is a fascinating um, technology to work on um, and to think through these things. And um, I, I heard a, uh, sci-fi author once uh, say, you know, they really should have someone like me at these companies to just sit there all day long and think about what could possibly go wrong. <laughs> That's right. A disaster consultant. <laughs> yes. Yes. Um, one of the criticisms of Elon's companies, like 
Tesla and SpaceX is that they have succeeded in part because of government grants, loans, and regulatory credits. As an American taxpayer, do you think it's money well spent? Yes. And, you know, also um, with regards to the loans for Tesla, he paid them back early and with interest. Um, so that was certainly a win for uh, the American taxpayer. Um, I, I think that if you look at um, the economy and what he's accomplished in terms of, well, we'll take SpaceX first and then Tesla, but SpaceX in terms of sending a, um, a, a rocket to orbit and bringing it back and landing it. I mean, that is a game changer, period. Because, you know, the example that I use in the book is if you're driving the kids to school in the morning and you drop them off and then send the car to the, you know, car pound uh, it, and then buy a new one for the next morning to get the car right. kids to school, like it's, it's pretty expensive after a while. And that's basically what was happening with rockets, but now they, they can be reused, reflown. Um, and, and that really opened up space in a, in a historic way. So I think that's huge for um, goals for um, the global economy. And then in terms of Starlink, which is controversial in terms of what it's doing to the night sky, um, but can space-based internet I mean, for example, get Africa online. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think it, it's interesting that in both books, in Google It and in Elon Musk, um, it is critically important, you know, that we, that Africa is part of the science, the um, innovation, but they, they need uh, the access that the rest of the world has. For sure. So and this is a great opportunity. They, they, they say things like um, moving to cellular phones has given a lot of countries a chance to skip an entire generation of technology. Well, here's this great opportunity to skip a generation of how people get it, the internet and yes. it can bring millions of people online to participate in the global economy. So it is a fantastic thing. And who, who knows, maybe uh, we can retire to Mexico sooner than we thought because we'll get Wi-Fi anywhere in the world. Right. Anywhere in the world. Um, my kids are ready for that. that when I told them when they, we had the first Starlink launch and we watched that and the next day, my son said to me, it's not working. Yeah. What are you <laughs> talking yet. about? And we were driving around. And he's like, I, I, I'm, I've opened Minecraft and I can't get online. <laughs> well, it's not quite ready yet. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Your laptop's not compatible. Yeah, but I do think that's a, a good return on investment for Americans. And in terms of Tesla, you know, it's it's easy to see them now is so sleek and awesome. But when Elon started going down this road, you know, it was a pretty dorky experience to drive an electric vehicle. I mean, it's nothing you'd want to pick up a date for. So, I, you know, I think that putting America on the map in terms of being a true innovator in the car industry, in, in electric vehicle industry. I mean, that, that's a huge um, win for the United States. I, you know, that is not to say that um, we don't all sometimes need a break from Elon's Twitter feed, but <laughs> in terms of has he made this country money? I, yes. Yeah, I, I agree with that. As a, as a Canadian looking South, 
I think, um, you know, probably Canada would be better off with an Elon or two uh, bringing that kind of business into the country and that kind of innovation. So, yeah, I, I agree with, with, with your analysis there. Um, you said earlier, well, as you were describing that situation with the, the idea of green shoots on Mars with the red background, um, you were sort of getting at this, this conscious or the, this um, awareness that Elon has about the importance of superlatives and, and spectacle. And we've seen some of that in what he's done uh, since his decision to go to Mars. Can you give an example of, a, of a, a PR stunt or a spectacular thing that Elon has done that's drawn a lot of attention to his work? Well, there are a lot to choose from, but I think the one that that most people will have seen is when he sent his red roadster into space uh, with the Falcon Heavy um, launch um, to uh, David Bowie singing. Um, <laughs> I think that that was really uh, a huge and, and, and that, you know, just to make it clear for people who are uh, just becoming space fans, you know, when you uh, launch a rocket like that, you have to uh, show um, that it can do certain things. And one of the things is that it can jettison a payload or what's in the cone, that it can deliver cargo um, to space. And usually it's like a block of cement or something mundane. Something boring, uh, yeah. Yeah, but the idea that he actually put his own convertible in the nose cone with a mannequin, a, a space-suited mannequin driving with references all over the place to the, his favorite books from his childhood, um, like the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and Isomoth's series, you know, that was very exciting. And he succeeded in getting the world's attention. I, I think it is a unique collection of, of, of traits that he is uh, this talented engineer and also talented pu at public relations. You usually don't find that in the same human being. That's right. No, that, that definitely. And then to top it off, he brought two the two boosters home simultaneously, mm. which was yes. uh, an amazing shot as well. Very iconic. It was like watching sci-fi, but it was happening. It Absolutely. was so dramatic. Yeah. And you know, I think that most of the people in the world had not been following all of their attempts to um, have breakthroughs on that technology of landing boosters. And so it was just um, spectacular. For sure. So, um, have you met Elon? I have not met Elon. Okay. So as a journalist, uh, if you ever were to meet Elon or you had the chance to sit down with him, what would you ask? Hmm. I think what I would ask Elon is, is what does he perceive to be the biggest obstacle that, um, human beings are facing in terms of um, succeeding at becoming um, a, a multi-planet species? And what are the biggest obstacles to weaning um, nations off of um, oil? Mm -hmm. As he yeah. sees it, I, there are plenty yeah. of thoughts from other people, but I would be curious you know, how he sees it. And I think too, the other question I would ask him is what is his plan in terms of he's in his forties now. Um, and that's the magical age when you start thinking about 
who's coming up behind me? Who's going to take the baton? Yeah. I'm curious about his answer to that question uh, because his companies are very much, um, he is a, such an intense driving force. So, um, and, and not just in terms of like, will Tesla's stock price be okay, but in achieving these goals that may not be achieved in his lifetime, what ideas does he have about who can carry on? What, so let me let me pull on that thread a little bit because I feel like, so we were talking earlier about how important mission is to his companies and, and how anybody within those companies knows what, what that mission is. They can all rally around it. The mission of uh, Tesla is to hasten our... Um, uh, transition away from fossil fuels. And I feel like if, if, depending on how you define accelerate, I mean, look at the world around us. Every car company is coming out with electric cars. We have chargers all over the place. The, the Tesla itself is making more cars every year than the year before. It feels like he's, he could almost check that box in his bucket list. And, and I, I realize he's probably going to exert more, uh, still, s- still some time with it, but I feel like it could succeed just keeping going. And mm-hmm. maybe he'll focus on Neuralink and maybe he'll focus more on SpaceX. We've had um, uh, Jeff Bezos say, I'm out pretty much out of Amazon because I want to focus on my space company. Mm-hmm. I wonder if it's going to draw Elon's attention more to SpaceX and less to, to uh, Tesla. We may, we may, he may be able to experiment with succession planning just by transitioning his focus a little bit. I think that'll be very interesting to watch over the next couple of years, because the other thing about Tesla is, is it isn't just about the, the cars, but also battery production and um, solar. Um, and I don't think those two things are yet where he wants them to be. Yeah. Um, but I don't think they're that far away either. Um, and I think it'll be interesting to see with the Biden administration, if any of that's accelerated with um, sort of eco-friendly tax credits for the consumer. Um, so that will be interesting to watch over the next two years. But um space is, is the thing. Um, and there is enough money and attention on, on space, space exploration and the space economy. And, and people wonder, well, what is the space economy? It's not just getting people to space or getting things to, to space, but it's mining asteroids. It's, um, getting 3d printers to space that can build, um, ships um, and uh, getting onto the moon and uh, mining the moon. Um, so there's all these kinds of things. And if there's infinite resources in space, you know, what does that mean for what's happening on earth? So there are all of these big, fascinating uh, questions to answer, problems to solve. And, and so it would not surprise me if that begins to take more of his attention, not just from the getting people to Mars, though that is first and foremost, but also what about the rest of it? Yeah. Well, what about the rest of it? And you have these new stunning pictures that have come out this week of Jupiter. 
Mm-hmm. And so I think that Elon has truly succeeded in getting everyone to, to focus on space again. You know, when he first started um, this journey, um, United States space program was still reeling from the last shuttle explosion and people were not talking about space. Um, 9-11 had happened. Um, We were involved in this, you know, never ending war. And that's where the national conversation was and and really has been until the last few years. And I, I think that that's fascinating. But yes, now that others are hot on his heels, it will be really interesting to see how that motivates him. It will. So the trouble with writing a story about Elon Musk is it's never done, or at least, you know, it certainly isn't done when you go to press. What are the moments when you've gone? Come on, Elon. Couldn't you have done that before I finished my book? <laughs> there must be a few moments you wish you could have included. Well, I, you know, I actually think that the the book I kind of at the end of it am like, you know, that was the hardest part was ending the book. Yeah. Um, because he's still doing all of 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 this stuff. Um, so I, not really, because I could, I could say, I wish I could have included this, that, and the other, and then tomorrow something else will happen. Sure. There were times when I would go for a walk with a friend to get some air and they would say, gosh, what is wrong? And I would say, oh, <laughs> Elon won't stop tweeting. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm about to, I'm about to attach my um, reputation to him. Come on, Elon, just stop with the. Stop with those tweets. Stop with the tweets. No, so, I, I think it's, I, I do. I think it's a fascinating uh, show to watch and the boring company, you know, mm-hmm. what ends up happening with tunneling um, under the surface of cities instead of driving to them or flying to them. I, there are all these different things that are happening at once and neural lace, you know, is it effective in terms of democratizing intelligence, right. you know, uh, that could really make the world uh, a fascinating place. Uh, it could also be, uh, you know, a disaster. But I think that's the fun of watching, you know, these ideas. Oh, and I will say, in terms of complaining about uh, Elon's uh, Twitter feed, I am glad that he tweets. And I, I think that if you look at some of the other great sort of innovators um, of history, you know, like Isaac Newton, you definitely would not have wanted him on Twitter. Or um, Ford, Henry no. Ford, no. <laughs> Nikola Tesla, no, thank you. Yeah, no, you're so, right. Um, He's you know, being judged by the time. He is, and I. It's interesting to me when when people covering him freak out over the things that he does, and. I, I have, haven't seen him do or say something that isn't in keeping with uh, who he is. So your book is really very thoroughly researched. There are endnotes, a bibliography. Your love of journalism shines through. Thank you. I see that you teach a fact from fiction course to help kids debunk fake news and develop critical thinking. What advice do you have for adults facing the same challenges? 
I think um, sources, you know, where are you getting your information um, and challenging other people on where they're getting their information. This is something I've started doing with my own kids is, is reveal your sources. So instead of saying, guys, you will not believe it, a um, rover landed on Mars today. So instead of saying that, what I'll say is you guys, NASA just sent out a press release and they're going to attempt to land a rover and they're going to broadcast it live. And this is how they're able to do that. Would you like to watch? So that you're involving kids in the process of discovery. You're in your natural language talking about where the information is coming from, especially now because there's so many rumors about, um, you know, is school going back full time? Will we be out of school next fall? Are we ever going back to school? Um, some people say that we don't need to go to school because we're going to have universal income and on and on and on. And you'll ask them, where did you hear that? And, and they say TikTok. Right. And or say, Facebook well, or whatever. Yeah. TikTok, YouTube, like where on TikTok? Like who said it? Who is this person? What is their expertise? What makes them credible? I think that challenging our kids and challenging um, each other is important, even over simple stuff. Like I, I was saying um, the other night, uh, please do not wipe the counters with a sponge. It leaves more germs than paper towel. And my son said, um, where is that information coming from? Uh -oh. I, said, I don't know. Your it's mother. <laughs> it's, it came from my mother. <laughs> and I have no idea where she got that. And it probably isn't even true. <laughs> but so let's go back to before you were writing these books and, and talk a little bit about when you were a journalist. So how did you become a journalist and what surprised you the most about that experience? Hmm. Um, how did I become a journalist? I knew I wanted to write. Um, I've always loved writing. I've always been curious and nosy and um, always wanted to tell other people whatever it was I found out, which does not make you popular in your family. By the way. <laughs> yeah. But, go, go, go overseas and do that. Yeah. 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 So I, um, I went to uh, journalism school at Northeastern in Boston. And I just loved it. I, I loved uh, the, the classes were taught by journalists. Um, I took a public policy class from Michael Dukakis. And um, what he taught me in public policy analysis, I have used on every story and every book, everything I've ever written. And um, so that's kind of how it happened. The first time Northeastern has a program called the co-op and you actually work in the field while you're in school. So you're taking classes, but you're also working in the field so that you graduate with experience in, in your field. So I did my co-op at uh, New England Cable News, which was kind of like a regional CNN. And I went there for the interview and I was standing in the newsroom and all of a sudden, like, I don't know if there was a shooting or a fire or what happened, but there was mayhem. People are running everywhere. They're screaming, they're swearing. The anchor's running to the set. People are running to the control room. Calls are being made. The scanners are turned up. And it was just something that I intuitively understood. It's like, oh, okay, you know, got it. Like, this is my place and these are my people. Wow. Um, 
And so that's kind of how it started. I think that, um, you know, I grew up in a very chaotic home environment. And one of the upsides of that is being very calm in chaos mm. and uh, being very focused uh, in chaos. And so um, I, I loved that part of it. I loved um, like genuinely contributing to society and making a difference in people's lives. I think the part of it that surprised me the most is the business part of it. You know, just how um, ratings driven, money driven, how cynical it can be at the, the, at the top of, of management of news management and the news corporation. Um, and, and that ultimately was, uh, you know, just, I just did not like that part of it. And is that part of the journey to writing books? Yes. Yes. Because I can remember I was working on a story. This is when I was in Charlotte, I was working on a story about, um, immigrants who were working in uh, chicken processing plants and they had to make so many cuts per minute. And it was like extraordinary. I mean, it was like 70, 80 cuts per minute. Like if you can imagine coming down on a, on a chicken every second and um, they were getting all kinds of injuries, like injuring their fingers and um, other injuries, women were reporting that um, they weren't pregnant. Women were not able to go to the bathroom for bathroom breaks and this kind of thing. And that when they were injured, they were taken to an on-site company doctor who gave them stitches or whatever. So none of this was ever getting reported. And it, it, to me, it, the, the exploitation there, um, the living conditions that people were living in offsite. It was just a very big story. And I can remember taking it. I'd spent hours doing the legwork and getting sources and getting, I'd even convinced um, someone to wear an undercover camera so that we mm. would have observational evidence of what was going on. So I was ready at this point to take all this information to management, to the lawyers, to make sure that we were legally sound and we were headed. And the response was, I just don't see how the, you know, South Charlotte, which is the wealthier part of Charlotte, how the South Charlotte soccer mom is going to relate. Wow. Yeah, and that's frustrating. It's, it's, a, it's, it's just soul killing because these people are putting their um, lives on the line so that you can eat, you know, chicken tenders. Mm -hmm. It's ridiculous. And that decisions are made about what to cover based on that level of meaninglessness. It was very difficult for me uh, to square that. Mm. So I, other than the crunch of time, what is the difference between researching for journalism and for a book? There really isn't you know, a major difference. You know, one of the things I was talking about Governor Dukakis and one of the things that, that he taught me um, in terms of analyzing public uh, policy, um, because I wanted to, which, which, you know, he sort of was somewhat amused with why I wanted to learn. I wanted to learn it so I could take it apart and figure out when politicians had totally blown it. Mm -hmm. So, um, but he, he kind of looked at things in these three circles. And so if you took an issue or a person 
or something that you're trying to figure out, you really look at that first circle is history and background. You know, who is the person? Where do they come from? What is their past? Um, what happened? If it's an issue, like let's say um, universal income, what is the history and background of income, of currency, of these financial systems? So then the next one is key players. Who are the key players? Who are the stakeholders? So, um, you know, when you're talking about um, the black hole book, well, let's make a list of, of the top scientists involved. Let's make a list of the funding agencies involved. Um, you know, think as many people as you can think of who have something to do with the subject. Um, if you're talking about welfare, um, let's talk to leading po leading policy experts, but let's also talk to people who are receiving welfare um, so that you can just have this well-rounded understanding of um, what's happening. So the next part is, the next circle is process. And that's actually talking to these people. And when you talk to them, then saying, who else should I talk to? What else would you have said that I didn't ask you? And so I used that approach for reporting. Um, and I use that approach for writing for kids, uh, you know, obviously for very young children. So when I'm writing picture books, um, th the process is not as long or as um, nuanced. You know, you're dealing with a simpler um, storyline with simpler language, um, but it's still the same process. So has COVID write, uh, affected your writing process? Um, yes, in that, you know, I've spent a lot more time um, parenting, mm -hmm. um, you know, and I think too, um, when writing, whether it's research, whether it's nonfiction or fiction, even in nonfiction, you're still, it's, it's still a creative process. It's still coming from you, you know, how you're getting into the book, how you're getting into the chapter, structurally, how you're setting it up, et cetera. And, you know, I think the, the pandemic makes work kind of disjointed and irregular in terms of, okay, am I going to get up early this morning before everybody gets up to do it? Um, am I going to sneak out of the house and, um, you know, trade houses with a friend? Like, well, how is this going to happen today? Yeah. And so it's that, that disjointing, I, I found that incredibly challenging, um, but, you know, it was one of those things where you really have to trust the people you're working with. And in this case, you know, I have amazing, um, amazing editors that are willing to be in the trenches with me, um, sometimes at one and two in the morning wow. um, with questions and, and sort of honing back in on the important themes uh, in the book. So walk me through what I'm sure feels different when you write your very first book to the success of books, like you've already got a publisher, you've already got editors. Is it really that different? I imagine the first book was really your creation start to finish. And then you tried to find somebody to buy it or how did that work? No, no, it was not. No, it was crazy. Um, so Google, it was the first book that I published. It wasn't the first book that I wrote, but it was the first book that I published. And um, the way that came about is an editor from Macmillan called my agent and said, you know, I really want someone to write about Google because 
Google's actually a cool company. How it came to be is a cool story, but it needs to be someone who can do the research, but also have sort of this fun um, hook and voice to it. So my agent called me and said, you know, are you interested in that? I said, absolutely. That would be really interesting. So I spoke with my editor about it and I loved her energy. I loved her grasp of the topic. And um, so that was a traditional book proposal. So Mm -hmm. I wrote two chapters of the book, outlined the rest of it, kind of overviewed where I would take the project and sent it in. But then it went, you know, before the acquisition board to decide if they wanted to acquire the book. So it was kind of a hybrid process. So your origin story builds on the journalism then, because most people who have an inkling to write a book don't already have an agent. So how does, how is that different? Is that related to your journalism or did you arrange to have an agent knowing you were going to write a book? So the process in writing for children is um, to one, write some books (laughs) and then um, send them to an agent. So um, the picture book that I wrote um, called Rescuing the Declaration of Independence, which um, came out last March is a, a little known um, heroic tale, um, from American history. And, um, I had submitted that to the agent to try to uh, get representation. And so, um, she usually agents take like months to get back to you. I mean, it's a nightmare process getting an agent. Um, but she got back to me the next morning and was like, I love this book. What else do you have? So I sent her four other manuscripts and she's like, I love them all. And <laughs> so I couldn't even believe it. Like, like I had to read it several times. Like, am I hallucinating or is this what she is saying to me? And so anyway, uh, Amy Joan Paquette is, is uh, my agent and she's uh, author in her own right. But uh, she offered representation. And then as we were going back and forth, getting these other manuscripts ready for submission, where you send them out to editors, this other inquiry came in from Macmillan. And so that's when um, she asked me, you know, that's what started that ball rolling. Okay. Very interesting. So I'm sorry to do this to you, but I have to ask the hard hitting questions. You're used to this as a journalist. Yeah, go for it. Uh, should tomatoes be allowed in clam chowder? No. Really? As simple as that. <laughs> Where are you from again? <laughs> it's just not meant to be. Well, it's- I know I'm talking to the expert on that. You wrote a book called Chowder Rules. What's that about? So Chowder Rules is a true story. It's a picture book. And it's a true story about a Maine state lawmaker who tried to make it illegal to put tomatoes in clam chowder in 1939. And what, who was his uh, opponent? Harry Tully. Harry Tully. So he was from Philadelphia. And uh, Harry heard about this and calls... Um, Cleveland Sleeper Jr., which again, true story, did not make up his name. Um, But he calls Cleveland up and says, you know, don't make it a crime. Let's have a duel. We'll have a duel with a cook-off and we'll settle this, you know, fair and square. Yeah. No, they didn't shoot each other. Thank goodness. Um, 
So as they're leading up to this big event, like it, it's making headlines across the country and uh, Joe DiMaggio gets involved and, um, and he's the New York Yankees outfielder superstar. Um, right. And he debated Cleveland sleeper on the radio because um, DiMaggio was pro tomato. So finally they have a cook off. Um, they make their own soup. I won't tell you which one won. But well, know, I think I, I can think, imagine. Yeah, I don't think I don't think it's that well. So it's not a well kept secret. The the book Shadow Rules feels like an ode to Maine. It what is. What is it about Maine that speaks to you? Oh gosh, the lay of the land for sure. Um, it's beautiful all the time. I mean, today it's rainy and um, gross, and it's still extraordinary to look out the window and watch it. Um, nice. And I love that. I also love the people. It's a very um, humble, hardworking, um, neighbor helping neighbor kind of place. And I really appreciate that. I've lived, you know, in a bunch of places and um, this is special. There is also some really great food here. <laughs> With no tomatoes in the chowder. No tomatoes in the chowder, at least not that I've heard of. I don't know that anyone in Maine would ever admit to that. No. So you have a, um, you mentioned it right at the top of the show that you have a book coming out on black holes. When is that coming out? And can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yes, I have two books coming out um, this year. One is a picture book called The Gravity Tree um, that comes out in May. And then uh, Black Hole Chasers comes out in September. And that is an account of the most extraordinary scientific breakthrough. And that was that even though we think we've seen black hole pictures before, because the, the graphics, the animations, the artist renderings are so extraordinary. And so, so many of them are based on actual physics. Uh, but the truth is we had never seen a black hole before. And so this group of scientists came together from around the world uh, working for a couple of decades to one, the, the technology did not exist to accomplish what they wanted to accomplish. So um, they had to innovate, um, have technological breakthrough and bring that to bear on the science and were able to capture the first image of a black hole, um, which is just extraordinary. And, you know, one of the great gifts of that book is um, being able to talk to all of the scientists, not all of them, there were like 350 that worked on all different parts of this process, but a lot of the, the key players. And um, though they would not describe themselves that way. Let me just tell you, they all mm -hmm. see themselves on equal footing, but um, it was just such a pleasure it was just such a pleasure. And I think that when that photograph was first revealed in 2019, um, we were awash um, as a planet in stories of nationalism, of um, horrific immigration stories, of um, all, all kinds of things were happening um, that were, were tough and painful and scary. And, and just for a moment, the world stopped and looked at this image and the image really represents that the, it is the visual limit of human knowledge. 
And to me, to be able to look at that, it was just amazing. Um, and so it was, it was a wonderful project to work on. Wonderful. And we're looking forward to that in September, right? Yes, in September. Be, and it will have plenty of sidebars to, to explain um, all the different terms and everything. Um, it, it's, it's very accessible without, um, you know, uh, leaving out the science. So this has been a, a terrific pleasure, Anna. The final question is, uh, you dedicate your book on Elon Musk to Quinn and Crowley. Who are they? Those are my boys. And what lessons would you like them to take from the book? Don't ever give up. Don't ever okay. give up. And I don't look as at failure as anything other than a part of the journey of solving the problem. Terrific. This brings us to the end of today's episode. Thank you very much, Anna, for being my guest. Thank you so much. I loved it. I really loved my time with you. Me too. Links to Anna's book will be in the show notes. My name is Tim Hampton, and you can reach me at tim at unusuallywellinformed.com. Thanks for listening. I hope you will subscribe and join me for the next show with another unusually well-informed leader in business and technology. Thank you for listening to the Unusually Well-Informed podcast. The opinions expressed by the host and guests on the Unusually Well-Informed podcast are their own and do not reflect that of their employer or any other affiliation. 